Sunday after General Assembly uh, is Assistant Pastor or Guest Preacher Sunday. Uh, And that is the case for us here at Trinity as well as uh, knowing that I was going to be gone all this week. um, I sent a note to uh, Brennan McCafferty, uh, who you have heard from this pulpit before. Uh, He is the son-in-law of Mark and Kathy Nyman, married to uh, their daughter Becca. And uh, is newly and recently appointed as an assistant to the pastor at our sister congregation up in the Twin Cities in Minnetonka called Good Shepherd. And uh, they were gracious uh, and and, uh, the McCafferty's were gracious to come down this week. And so Brennan is coming to us to bring us God's word this morning. He is in the process of being ordained in the PCA. He's been to seminary. Uh, He's under care of our presbytery. He's been licensed by our presbytery. Uh, And in January, Lord willing, he will be taking the rest of the ordination exams in our presbytery and uh, standing for ordination uh, in our denomination uh, as they seek to go serve the Lord wherever he might take them uh, through our missions agency, Mission to the World. So, Brennan, come and preach God's word to us and remind us of his grace and mercy. Well, good morning and greetings from uh, Good Shepherd. It is, it is really good to um, be here with you again, and I'm excited to, to be able to bring God's Word to you this morning. We're going to be looking at the book of Genesis. Um, so if you have a Bible, if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. We're using the Pew Bibles. That's going to be on page 13. Genesis 18, just to give a little context, we're here in the life of of Abraham. Life of Abraham, we've already had the great covenant promises given to Abraham. Chapters 12, 15, 17, now we're here in Genesis 18. We have a theophany here, God uh, appearing. There's several men that come and and Abraham and his wife prepare a a, a feast for them. And then we have the, the promise of the birth of a son to Sarah, who is in her old age, Isaac. Um, And and then we're going to pick up here in verse 16 and read through the end of of the chapter. This is uh, the word of our God. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. 
Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this one. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you, and Lord, we thank you because your, your word is a, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The unfolding of your word, Lord, gives light, it gives understanding to the simple, and we pray, Lord, that it would do that this morning, God, that it would be light to us and give us understanding, and so we pray now for your blessing. God, make your face to shine upon us, your people, and teach us, Lord, your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the uh, American science fiction TV series, Person of Interest, there is a billionaire computer programmer by the name of Harold Finch, who has developed a supercomputer nicknamed The Machine. Now, this machine has a lot of different capabilities, but what makes it particularly unique is its ability to identify ahead of time those who are going to be involved in deadly crimes. Sometimes the criminal is identified. Sometimes the victim is identified. And so with this information, Harold and his buddy, John Reese, former CIA agent, of course, they do whatever they can to prevent these deadly crimes from happening. That's, that's the premise of the show, using information given by this machine to try and stop these crimes of murder. And although it's not entirely parallel, I think Abraham had a, a somewhat similar experience here in Genesis 18. Of course, there is no supercomputer here that is giving Abraham information about what is going to happen. But in Genesis 18, verse 20, God gives Abraham a little glimpse into the future. In verse 20 God says, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is, is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So you see, God is, God is telling Abraham what is going to happen next. I'm going down to Sodom and Gomorrah, not, not just to stop by for a friendly visit, but to see if it deserves judgment because of its wickedness. Now, Abraham would have been very familiar with Sodom, his nephew Lot lived there. He knew it was an evil city. And he therefore knew what the outcome of God's visit would be. It's going to be judgment, destruction, extermination. That was what was awaiting Sodom and Gomorrah. And so how does Abraham respond 
to this glimpse into the future that he has. Well, we see here that Abraham draws near to God and he prays. He draws near to God and he prays. He pleads to God on behalf of, of Sodom. That is Abraham's response to this impending destruction. Prayer. You could say priestly intercession. You see, I think we have here to a degree Abraham taking on the office of a priest and is interceding for others. And therein, as we'll see, we also have a, a foreshadowing of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now we today as Christians, we don't have the same sort of special revelation that Abraham had, right? We don't know what is going to happen tomorrow or the next week or the next month. We don't know ahead of time if God is going to destroy such and such a city or such and such a country. But there are things we do know. You know, just like there was evil in Sodom, we too see evil in many different places across this world. And while we don't have definite knowledge of what tomorrow or the next day holds, we all do have a certain knowledge of what is going to happen in the future. Jesus is coming back. Judgment is coming. Jesus will, will judge and put an end to all wickedness. And so in light of these realities, in light of this glimpse into the future that we all have... What should we as Christians do? What should our response be? There are several things we can and should do, but I think this passage in particular is, is God's call for you to, to pray to God for mercy to be shown to the wicked. Pray to God for mercy to be shown to the wicked. That's God's call to you today, and I want to explore that a little bit more uh, this morning by looking at four different features of, of Abraham's prayer that will hopefully encourage and equip you for, for this, this task. And, and so the first feature I want to look at of, of Abraham's prayers is what I'm calling the, the recipient of prayer. The recipient, that is, to whom does Abraham pray here? With whom is he communicating? And, and the answer is very clear. It's God. It says in verse 22 that the men that Abraham had just provided a meal for, they turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then verse 23, Abraham draws near to God. Now this language of, of drawing near is, is, is significant. This is priestly language. What, what did priests do? They, they drew near to God. They functioned as, as a bridge or a mediator between God and his people. And so already we're seeing hints of Abraham taking on a, on a priestly role here, coming before God. And then Abraham begins to speak and make his request known to God. The point here is the recipient, the recipient of this prayer is God. That is who Abraham draws near to. That is who he is speaking with. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, obviously. You know, God is the one that we pray to. Why are you why are you even taking the time to mention this? Because it's obvious. Well, sometimes I like to intentionally point out the obvious because it's so easy to read through the scriptures quickly without being amazed at what is happening. Here is little Abraham drawing near to and speaking with God Almighty. That's, a, that's amazing. Do you ever wonder at the awesome reality of prayer that, that you, a sinful creature, have access to God the Creator in prayer? You have access to the throne of grace. You can draw near to God. And bring all of your petitions and requests to God. And He listens to you. We take the time to think about it. It's, 
It's pretty mag- magnificent. You know, it's, it's, like a, it's like a poor beggar on the streets who, whenever he wanted to do so, he could go straight into the White House and present all of its needs and requests to the president. That'd be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? It's kind of like prayer, but prayer is infinitely greater than that. Poor, sinful, weak human beings can go straight to the almighty creator and sustainer of the universe whenever they want and present all of their needs. It's incredible, but but prayer can become so ordinary and routine in our lives that we easily forget just how amazing it is that we can bring all of our needs to God. And he stoops down to hear us. So brothers and sisters, don't lose sight of the awesome reality of what a prayer is. Is. So God is, he's clearly the recipient of prayer is, but, but who exactly is this God that Abraham is praying to? Who is he? What is he like? We could spend a lot of time talking about this. Let me just point out a few quick truths from this passage about who God is. In verse 22, you'll see it says that Abraham still stood before the Lord. All capitals there. If you're not familiar with the significance of this, When you see the title Lord in all capitals, it's a reference to the covenant name of God, Yahweh. It signifies that God has entered into covenant relationship with mankind. And and you see, it is precisely because God is the Lord, Yahweh, and because he has entered into relationship with mankind, that we can come to him in prayer, our, our covenant God. Now you'll notice also in verses 27, 30, 31, and 32, Abraham uses the title Lord there as well to refer to God. But in these instances, it's not all capitals. It's just capital L. The rest is lowercase, and that is the Hebrew word Adonai. It's a word that that very simply means master or Lord. It carries with it this idea of sovereignty and rulership, dominion. God is the sovereign Lord. And we can also see that very clearly in the other title that Abraham uses to refer to God in verse 25, judge of all the earth. So God is the sovereign ruler of all the earth, the one who judges of all of mankind. That is the God that Abraham is praying to, the sovereign Lord and judge of all the earth. And it is because God is sovereign over all things that you can have confidence that your prayers are meaningful. God is in control. And that means you are, you are praying to a God who can actually change things. That there are people who, who argue that if God is truly sovereign, there is no need to pray. Well, God has determined everything, and so prayer is pointless. But what I want to say to you is you should have motivation to pray precisely because God is sovereign. If God isn't sovereign, if he isn't the judge and ruler of the earth, why pray? Why waste time praying to a God who isn't in control, who can't affect change? See, the sovereignty of God is not a hindrance to your prayer life, but it should be the fuel for it. The God who receives your prayers, he's the sovereign Lord, the judge of all the earth. And he's not just the sovereign judge, he's also a righteous judge. And that can be seen in Abraham's question in verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just or do what is right? It's a rhetorical question here. Abraham isn't questioning whether God is, is actually going to do what is right. He's trying to make the point that God, as the judge of the earth, will do the right thing. God is righteous. And Abraham knew that very well. And again, what a comfort it must have been for him to know that He was making his request known to a God who would necessarily always do what is good and right and just. Far be it from God to do something unjust or wicked. 
So God is righteous, and yet at the same time, Abraham is also clearly convinced that God is also merciful. Merciful. The essence of his request, which we're going to be looking at a little bit more later, is that God would spare the wicked city of Sodom. That God would demonstrate his mercy to a sinful people. And Abraham knew that because he was the perfect example of having received mercy from God. So you see, brothers and sisters, this is who received Abraham's prayer. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God that has entered into relationship with man, the sovereign Lord and judge of all the earth, a God who is, who is righteous, who will always do the right thing, and yet who is also merciful, who delights in showing compassion and kindness to wicked people. When Abraham prayed, that is the God he was praying to. And when you pray, brothers and sisters, this is the same God who receives your prayers. So that's the recipient of prayer, this, this, this God here. Moving on then, uh, the second feature of Abraham's prayer that I want to look at is the, the tone or the manner of his prayer. That is, how did Abraham pray? What characteristics mark his prayer? And I think we see here two dominant qualities to his prayer. The first is humility. Humility. Now notice the way Abraham refers to himself before God. In particular, verse 27, you know what he says, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. How does Abraham refer to himself? I who am but dust and ashes. See, Abraham, he had a genuine understanding of his creatureliness, his unworthiness before the Lord. He realized what an incredible wonder it was to speak before God. He, a weak and vile sinner, was undertaking this magnificent activity of prayer before the judge of all the earth. Brothers and sisters, prayer ought always to be marked by humility. There is no room for prayer marked by pride. Regardless of who you are or what your position is in this world, your prayers ought to be marked by a humility that acknowledges who you are before God. Matthew Henry, commenting on this passage, he says this, Whenever we draw near to God, it becomes us reverently to acknowledge the vast distance that there is between us and God. He is the Lord of glory. We are worms of the earth. <laughs> that, that's the reality of, of prayer. And that's the, that's the reason why it should never be marked with arrogance, but always with, with modesty and lowliness. Notice also the fear that Abraham has of God's potential disapproval of what he is doing. Verse 30, Abraham says, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak. And again in verse 32, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Abraham has this great fear. He doesn't want to make God upset. He doesn't want to displease God. And so he pleads that God would not get angry with him because of his repeated requests. Again, this mark of humility upon Abraham as he prays. So Abraham is humble. But we also see second characteristic of his prayer that is evident here is boldness. Abraham isn't just humble, he's also bold. And, and, and where do we see that? Well, I think we see it, first of all, in the very fact that he undertakes to speak to the Lord at all. Remember what we've just been looking at. Abraham is dust and ashes. And here he is before God, the, the sovereign Lord and judge of all the earth. Do you think possibly that Abraham's humility, his recognition of who he was before Almighty God, might have prevented him from coming to God at all. He could have very easily thought, oh, I'm just a worm. I'm dust and ashes. I can't come before God. I can't ask him for anything. 
But that's not what we see. Abraham is humble. Yes, Abraham realizes who he is, but that doesn't stop him from approaching God in prayer. He draws near to God and he makes his request, and that in and of itself required great boldness. But what's really amazing about this passage is that Abraham doesn't stop with one simple request. And that in particular, I think, is where we see Abraham's boldness. God answers in the affirmative to Abraham's first request. If I find it Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And so does Abraham say, oh, okay, great. Well, that's settled. Thanks, God. And then move on. No, that's not how the story goes here. Abraham progresses on. He continues on with his pleading. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? God again answers in the affirmative. I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And Abraham progresses on to 40, to 30, to 20, and finally to 10. And as God continues to grant Abraham's requests, Abraham continues asking for more. It's incredible to see this, this how much boldness it would, it would have required for Abraham to keep on asking God for more and more. And remember, he's, he's marked by this humility. He doesn't want to make God angry. He knows his position before God, and yet that doesn't stop him from pleading with God. Filled with this confidence and courage, he asks, and he asks, and he asks. It may remind you of the, the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18. Where this widow, she keeps on coming to this judge over and over and over again. She's persistent. She's bold and courageous until she gets her way. And Abraham, in a very similar manner, he keeps on coming to God over and over again. What boldness he has. Let me encourage you to to not only pray with humility, but with boldness. This is what the writer of Hebrews tells us explicitly to do. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, with boldness, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Boldly come to God in prayer and don't give up. Keep coming to God. Keep pleading before God. He delights in the prayers of his people. So don't be afraid to come to him and persist in prayer. So that's the, that's the tone, the manner of his prayer. I want to move then to the third feature of Abraham's prayer, which I'm, which I'm calling the scope or the content of his prayer. That is, what is Abraham's prayer primarily about? What is he praying for? And if we had to summarize it, we could say that Abraham's prayer was a prayer for the sparing of Sodom. A prayer for God to show mercy upon Sodom. And here is where I think we really see Abraham functioning as a priest, as he intercedes for others. Because that's what priests did. They they were mediators who made intercession for others before God. And that's what Abraham does here. Now, Now, notice... It's not merely a prayer for the sparing of the righteous or a request for God to to show mercy upon the righteous. Abraham doesn't just ask that the righteous will be spared. No, he asks that the whole city will be spared because of the presence of 
the righteous. Look at verse 24 where Abraham, he says, Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? You see, his concern is, is for the entire place, for Sodom as a whole. Again, similar request in verse 28. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? See, Abraham's concern is not simply for the righteous, but for the whole city of Sodom. And I want to let that sink in for a moment. Abraham's deep concern for Sodom. For Sodom. I think to grasp how remarkable that is, you have to understand a little bit about Sodom. If you could only use one word to describe Sodom, I think that word would be wicked. Sodom was a wicked city. And the scriptures make that very clear. Genesis 13, 13 says the men of Sodom were wicked. Great sinners against the Lord. And in verse 20, which we just read, God, God says the sin of Sodom is very grave. And of course, if you read on Genesis 19, right after this account, you see this wickedness and sin on display, particularly evidenced in the sin of homosexuality. The scriptures make it clear that Sodom was marked by great wickedness. And there is, in my mind, little doubt that Abraham recognized Sodom's wickedness, and he hated it. He would have been repulsed by the wickedness of Sodom. And so what might you think that Abraham's prayer request would be? Maybe, God, would you please destroy this wicked city of Sodom? God, spare the righteous, but please get rid of that awful city. It's terrible there. Just wipe it out. That's not what we have here. It's not what we see. Here is Abraham praying, praying fervently for wicked Sodom to be spared. Matthew Henry, again, he comments with these, these fine words. Though sin is to be hated, sinners are to be pitied and prayed for. Though sin is to be hated, sinners are to be pitied and prayed for. Matthew Henry, he continues on, and, and this is really great. He says about Abraham, We never find him less earnest in pleading with God for himself and his family as here for Sodom. In other words, nowhere in the scriptures do we see Abraham praying this passionately uh, for his family or for himself or for fellow believers. The most fervent prayer of Abraham that we have recorded in the scriptures is a prayer for the ungodly and the wicked. What great charity and compassion on display. And I think we have here a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, a man who wept over sinners, who wept over the city of Jerusalem. And then as he was being crucified on the cross by his enemies who hated him, what does he cry out? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. There is Christ on the cross executing the office of a priest, not only in his offering up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, but also in his intercession, his, his pleading for mercy to be shown to the wicked. And although Christ undoubtedly hated their sin, he was nonetheless marked by a deep love and concern for the wicked. He pitied them and he prayed for them. I don't know about you, uh, but this is, this is convicting for, for me. 
to, to see this, this kind of compassion and, and love that we see in Abraham and Jesus himself, so concerned for the welfare of the wicked that they plead earnestly on their behalf. Because if I'm honest, I, I probably spend more time complaining about the wicked, annoyed with the ungodly, than I spend time praying for them. And I think this is a very real temptation for all of us as Christians. You know, it's a good thing to hate evil. You should hate evil. And, and wickedness should fill you with righteous anger. There are many things I I hate about this country that we live in, but our response as believers in Christ should not just be hating sin and getting angry with the wickedness we see around us. Our response must also include praying for those enslaved in sin, begging for God to show mercy upon the wicked, asking that God might rescue those living in darkness. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, are you praying consistently for the unbelievers in your life? Are you praying for your lost co-workers? Are you praying for your lost family members? For your lost government leaders and elected officials? Are you praying for the unreached people groups of the world who have no gospel witness? Are you persevering in prayer for them? Are you asking that God might open their eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let this passage be a reminder to you of the importance of, of not only praying for yourself or, or your family or for your, your fellow believers and sisters in Christ, but also for the wicked, for those who don't know Jesus Christ, that God would have mercy upon them. Right, let me encourage you, all of you, over this next week, think of at least one person in your life that doesn't know Jesus Christ and spend time regularly praying for that person. You can branch out from there, but it's a good way to get started. Pick a person, someone who doesn't know Christ, and start praying for them regularly this week. Well, that that brings me then to the, the fourth and final feature of this prayer, which I like to call the success of this prayer. The success of this prayer. And you might you might be wondering, well, well, what do you mean, success of this prayer? It wasn't successful. Sodom wasn't spared. If you just read Genesis 19, Sodom is annihilated. But you see, if you think Sodom's destruction means that Abraham's prayer was not successful, then you're mistaken, because what you failed to see is every request that Abraham made, God granted. Abraham asks, God, if there are 50 righteous in the city, will you spare the whole city? God's answer, yes. If there are 45, God's answer, yes. If there are 40, God's answer again, yes. If there are 30, 20, 10, God's answer every time, yes. Every single time, God agrees to spare the wicked city of Sodom for the sake of so many righteous people. Abraham asks and Abraham receives. The problem was that the city of Sodom was so wicked, there were not even 10 righteous people within it. And that's why Sodom is destroyed in the next chapter. And you might wonder, you know, why did Abraham stop asking? Why didn't he go lower? Why didn't he go down to five? Why didn't he go down to one? We, we don't know for sure. We can only speculate, really. J.G. Voss suggests if, if Abraham went any lower, he basically would have just been praying for his own relatives, for Lot and Lot's family. And so maybe he didn't feel comfortable doing that. Maybe Abraham... He assumed 10 was low enough of a number. You know, 10 is not that many. There's got to be at least 10 people in the city. I don't need to go any lower. Maybe God simply restrained Abraham from asking anymore. We don't know. What we do know 
is every time he asks, his request is granted. And in this, we see the success and the power of prayer. God listens and God responds. Brothers and sisters, don't underestimate the power of prayer. It's easy to do so, but prayer is powerful. And prayer is powerful because God is powerful. James 5, verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So be encouraged to come to God. Pray for the salvation of unbelievers. Because if if God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, that's Ephesians 3, he certainly is capable of doing what we ask him to do. You know, what I love so much about this passage, though, is, is we get a glimpse not only into Abraham's concern for the wicked, but we also get a glimpse into God's compassionate heart. God's compassionate heart. In his granting of Abraham's requests, we see his willingness to spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. His willingness to show mercy upon many for the sake of a few. And it is in this reality that we have a beautiful foreshadowing of the gospel. Because you see, at the heart of the gospel is God's declaration of his willingness to show mercy upon the ungodly for the sake of the righteous. And you know, the good news of the gospel begins with, with the bad news that, that we are the ungodly. You and I, we're the people of Sodom living in wickedness and deserving of God's judgment. But there is hope. We can be spared because of the presence of the righteous. And how many righteous people are needed to spare us? Do we need a billion a million, thousand, one hundred, fifty, ten? No. Just one. Just one. The Lord Jesus Christ. The one who truly was righteous, who lived a perfect life, and yet he was not spared. But he endured God's judgment and wrath upon the cross so that we who are ungodly might be spared through faith in him. That's the good news of the gospel. And yet the reality is that this promise of being spared, of being covered from from God's judgment and wrath, it only applies to those who look to Jesus, who put their trust in him. For those continuing to live on in their sin, living in wickedness, denying the one true God, what remains for them but a, a fearful expectation of judgment? Those who are not covered in Christ will be judged and they will be condemned. And, and so as Christians who have been spared, how will you respond to the wicked around you? Will you boast in your salvation as the wicked perish? Will you sit idly by and just complain about all the evil around you? Or will you pray? Will you pray like Abraham? Will you pray like the greater Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you pray that God would open the eyes of the ungodly just as he opened your eyes? That that God would spare them just as he has spared you? That they would trust in the only one whose righteousness can save them, the Lord Jesus Christ? See, brothers and sisters, it is the truth of the gospel the reality of what God has done for you in Christ, that is the foundation and motivation for praying to God for mercy to be shown to the wicked around you. Let's pray to that end now.
Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you, God, that we who have called on the name of Jesus Christ and believed in him, God, we have been spared. Lord, even though we are the ungodly, we have been spared because you were not spared. You sent your son to die in our place. Lord, and you've brought us into your fold. You've adopted us as sons and daughters. And we pray, Lord, that the recognition of these gospel truths, the recognition of all that you've done for us, Lord, that that would motivate us and encourage us to be pleading and praying for those who don't know Jesus. God, give us a heart for the lost. Give us a desire to see the wicked come to know you. And we pray, God, that you would help us not just to be those who complain and are annoyed with the evil around us, but that we would pity and pray for sinners, for those who don't know you, Lord, that we would intercede on their behalf, that they may come to know you, the living and true God. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. As Paul was writing a letter to a church of people that probably in some way or another resembled the people of Sodom, uh, he gave them instructions about the Lord's Supper. And this is what he told them. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you, drink, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. I wonder who you relate to in the story of Genesis 18. I think Brennan did a great job this morning of pointing us to Abraham as an example, as a model for us, for how we ought to be praying. How we ought to have a heart for uh, the unbelievers and, and wicked people around us. But I hope you also heard Brennan mention there at the end of his sermon that we are also to be thinking of ourselves as the people who need God's grace that were in the city of Sodom. It is interesting that as Paul was writing these letters about uh, writing this letter to First Corinthians uh, about this table, he had said something earlier to them that relates to what we were just reading in Genesis 18. In First Corinthians 6, Paul said. He's speaking to the same people that he just gave them these words about the Lord's Supper. And he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, thank, thanks be to God that Paul didn't stop. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, this table is not for the righteous. 
It's for the unrighteous who have their faith firmly trusting in Christ alone for their righteousness. Paul said to the Corinthians, such were some of you. People in that church struggled with that list of sins. People in this church struggle with this list of sins. And we are reminded that what qualifies us to come to this table is not our righteousness. This table specifically points us away from our righteousness. It points us to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that as we rest and trust in Him, not only do we have our sins paid for, we are granted the righteousness of Christ to our accounts so that we stand before our Father in Heaven as perfectly righteous as Christ is righteous. If you're here this morning... And that's your hope. That is your trust. That is your faith. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you put all of your trust and hope for your salvation in Him alone as He is revealed to us in the Scriptures. And you have publicly professed that faith in Christ at Trinity or another church that believes the Bible is God's Word and believes that His salvation is by grace alone through Christ alone. Then as these elements come around, eat and drink, not as someone who is righteous and worthy of it, but who is someone recognizing our unworthiness and that only Christ makes us worthy. Let's pause for a moment and thank him for giving us this table and ask him to use it to bless and strengthen us. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and we are overwhelmed with your grace and mercy, not only in the story of what took place with Abraham and his prayers, how you answered Abraham perfectly, how you have redeemed your people throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament and throughout redemptive history. We are amazed at your grace and mercy for us specifically. Father, we recognize that we are far from you in our hearts and our minds and our actions. We recognize that such were some of us, the wickedness of Sodom in our own hearts and minds. And yet, as we rest in Christ, you have washed us, you have renewed us, you have justified us through the Lord Jesus Christ and because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so as we come to this table, we pray humbly and yet boldly, use this as a means of grace to point us to Christ and to strengthen us in our faith so that as we go out this week, we might truly glorify and enjoy you this week ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and after he gave thanks for it, he gave it to his disciples. As I ministering in his name, give it to you. And he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As the trays with the bread are coming around, you can remain seated and I would invite you to take your hymnals and you can turn to uh, hymn number 341. This is not a super familiar hymn to us. We've used it before, but not recently. And so Dan is going to play through the hymn one time through so that you can get the sense of the tune and then we'll join in and sing the verses after that.
the body of the Lord Jesus Christ given for you. Do this in remembrance of him. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took a cup and he gave the cup to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. As the trays come around, you'll see there are clear cups in the outer rings. Those contain wine and the tinted cups in the middle contain grape juice. And I would encourage you to use the time as the trays are coming around to silently meditate on the reality of all that Christ has accomplished for you as the one righteous person that pleads for your forgiveness of sins and gives you his righteousness.
The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ given to cleanse you from your sins. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that you have showered it abundantly upon us. We thank you for your means of grace of the word and the Lord's Supper today. We pray, Father, that through the work of the Holy Spirit, you would truly strengthen us for this week. Help us to glorify and enjoy you. Help the truth of who you are and what you have done for us in Christ to echo loudly into our ears and our hearts this week. Help us to truly love you and to love our neighbors. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final hymn is number 263. We would invite you to take your hymnals and turn to 263 and let's stand and sing together.
hear now God's good word of grace, His word of promise, His word of benediction over you as He sends you out to be His people this week. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.